Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 364 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, we're delighted to present another instalment of our special Poetry Break series. Here, the poets Rebecca Goss and our host Julia Copus discuss two classic poems, Bath by Amy Lowell and Sea Love by Charlotte Mew. This is Poetry Break for the Royal Literary Fund. I'm Julia Copus, and with me today to talk about American poet Amy Lowell, as well as British poet Charlotte Mew, is the poet Rebecca Goss. Besides being a poet, Rebecca is a poetry tutor and mentor, currently living in Suffolk. She published her first full-length poetry collection, The Anatomy of Structures, in 2010, and her second, Her Birth, was shortlisted for the 2013 Forward Prize for Best Collection. It also won the poetry category in the East Anglian Book Awards, and in 2015 was shortlisted for the Warwick Prize for Writing and the Portigo Prize for Literature. Her third full collection, Girl, was published with Carcanet in 2019 and shortlisted for the East Anglian Book Awards. She has an MA in Creative Writing from Cardiff University and a PhD by publication from the University of East Anglia. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, Julia. (laughs) Rebecca, welcome. Uh, Yeah, on this extremely hot day, um, I just want to point out that we are recording this in the middle of uh, a heat wave with sort of governmental amber warnings and all sorts. I'm rather wishing that I could have my fan running in the background, but it could drown us out. It could, and my window is um, closed as instructed, so so we're both going to sit here quite warm, I think. (laughs) Yeah, I do apologise. We are being heroic. Uh, So can you tell us which poet you've chosen to talk about today uh, and which poem? I've chosen to talk about the poet Amy Lowell. Mm. I first came across her work in an anthology of love poetry by women that my parents bought me for my 20th birthday. Mm -hmm. And I was immediately drawn to the brevity of the pieces in the anthology. I've always loved a short poem. Mm. But I was also really struck by how modern they felt to me. And I was really shocked at the dates beside her name, you know, that this woman was writing in the um, early 1900s. And I was very surprised at that. They just felt so fresh and new. And I loved the language that she used. So um, I knew then she was going to be a poet I would be interested in. So why this particular poem, Bath? This particular poem, Bath, then uh, came very much into focus for me when I was writing a poetry course um, called The Poetry of Home. And I wrote the course focusing on uh, different rooms within a house. So there were poems about kitchens, there was a module all about kitchens, one about sitting rooms, one about bedrooms, and a module on bathrooms. For the poetry school, so it was like a six-week course, um, I really enjoyed researching and writing it. And when it came to bathrooms, I was surprised at how many poems there were out there, actually, when I started my research, set in bathrooms. 
and and then part of the course was that you'd focus on the different ways that room has been portrayed in poetry basically and mm -hmm. then get people to write their own poems set in that space so um but i thought bathrooms was really interesting and that the more i read up on the poetry and the more i thought about the space myself what i think is interesting about a bathroom is that it's incredibly uh, private obviously one of the few rooms with a lock on the door in your own house yeah. which and is also... why teenagers spend so much time in them <laughs> yes, where they can escape to yeah um but also you find yourself actually alone if you think of a sort of uh, a household you yes. know you, you can be alone in a bathroom and it is a space full of ritual we all have our um you know different rituals when it comes to our daily ablutions <laughs> you know where where we keep our toothbrush where we you know how we clean our teeth you know there are all these things that take place behind a closed door so they're very private spaces in some respects but then equally they are rooms that are all about exposure and abandon you yeah. know all that nakedness and nudity and and the weird positions we must get ourselves into in order to shave legs or cut toenails or whatever so i think they're really interesting rooms bathrooms that's quite pertinent to this poem as well, isn't it? The exposure and the privacy side by side. Um, Very much so. Because I, I read somewhere that uh, this particular poem caused quite a scandal when uh, Amy Lowell first read it to an audience because they automatically identified the poem speaker with Lowell herself. I mean, probably correctly. Yeah. Um, and therefore they couldn't help envisioning her sort of naked. <laughs> yeah, I, I read that too. And I think it, the, the audience sort of started to snicker at first and Lowell, you know, confidently just carried on reading. But then I think she was eventually booed. So oh it obviously made people just feel too uncomfortable, that idea that not only was she portraying herself in inverted commas as naked, but enjoying it, I suppose, as well. Yes. So maybe that was, you know, way too shocking for 1915. That was 1915, was it? Mm-hmm. I mean, nowadays, we make this distinction, don't we, between what we call the lyric eye, you know, the eye in the poem, and the sort of autobiographical living eye. Um, so that, you know, it's something that American poet Sharon Olds has talked about quite a lot. And she, she talks about the apparently personal, which I think is very good. Um, yeah, I like that. But um, I suppose, you know, that's a fairly modern way of, of looking at it. Yes, you're right. I think an audience is much more aware of that now. Mm, yeah. Mm. Um, and all poems are fictions in the sense that, mm. you know, they, they are made things. Um, True. So, well, we will get into the meat of the poem a bit more in a moment. But first, I think we should hear it. Um, and before we do that, are there any difficult words or phrases that you would like to gloss for us or um, any tricky bits that you would like us to listen out for? I don't think there are very many tricky bits, actually. The one word I will probably pick out is beryl. Mm -hmm. um, and it is beryl is refers to a gemstone. It comes under the umbrella of sort of emerald and okay. um, sort of aquamarine, that sort of. But it's not actually dark green. It, it's much more um, pale, like a like a... A bluey gold is how I would describe it. It's um, it's like that a very, very amazing. pale bluey gold. It's very, very, very um, beautiful stone. I saw a beryl ring in a little shop on our way to the Isle of Skye once years ago oh, and wow. fell in love with it, but absolutely couldn't afford it. But I made a note that I like beryl. <laughs> and, and that colour you describe sounds absolutely, I mean, for sunlight on water. Yes, it is absolutely yeah. perfect. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, it would be great if you could read it for us. Okay. Bath. The day is fresh washed and fair, and there is a smell of tulips and narcissus in the air. The sunshine pours in at the bathroom window and bores through the water in the bathtub in lathes and planes of greenish white. It cleaves the water into floors like a jewel and cracks it to bright light. Little spots of sunshine lie on the surface of the water and dance, dance, and their reflections wobble deliciously over the ceiling. A stir of my finger sets them whirring, reeling. I move a foot and the planes of light in the water jar. I lie back and laugh and let the green-white water, the sun-floored beryl water, flow over me. The day is almost too bright to bear. The green water covers me from the too bright day. I will lie here a while and play with the water and the sunspots. The sky is blue and high. A crow flaps by the window and there is a whiff of tulips and narcissus in the air. I suppose we could summarise the poem as, you know, a bather's meditation on sunlight reflecting off the bathwater. I mean, that's yes. it. That's its content, isn't it? Very <laughs> basically put. Um, but obviously, there's there's more to it than that. I, I wondered if we should start by addressing the sort of elephant in the room. So this is a very specific type of poem, isn't it? Because it's not broken into lines as most poems are. And uh, in fact, all the poems that we've talked about so far on the Poetry Break podcast are all broken into lines of verse. Okay, so we have our, what, our first prose poem. We have our first prose poem. So tell us what a prose poem is. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, a prose poem typically could look on the page like an extract of prose with very long lines. Mm -hmm. And I did have a discussion with somebody about a particular poem of my own once, whether I had written a prose poem or just a poem with very long lines. Well, I suppose with a prose poem, when it's reprinted, it doesn't matter where the line breaks. Exactly that. Yeah. Exactly that. So you're meant to really read it so your eye just runs on. And mm-hmm. so so I do think we consume a prose poem slightly differently. Yeah. When I see a prose poem, I know I'm going to be taken, really going to be taken deep inside a moment. That's interesting. I really see prose poems as very much like um, there's there's something photographic about them. They're capturing something because uh, they look a little bit like photos. So this one does, doesn't it? Sort of. They do. Yeah, exactly. That kind of square frame. It's a yeah. framed experience, I think. Um, I also read a definition or an explanation of a prose poem recently that I quite liked. Um, It's from the American poet Peter Johnson, Mm. who's also editor of the Prose Poem and International Journal. And in the first issue of that journal, he he wrote this, just as black humour straddles the fine line between comedy and tragedy, so the prose poem plants one foot in prose, the other in poetry, both heels resting precariously on banana peels. <laughs> and I, I love that. Um, yeah, I do. I, I suppose to put it another way, the prose poem looks like prose, as you said, but it reads like poetry um, and it, it uses 
certain traditionally poetic techniques. So you sort of hinted at compression, you said it captures a moment. And it, it also contains musical sound patterns, repetition. Um, uh, and I suppose most significant in this case, that very precise imagery, which of course prose on its own can do, but um, yeah. Yes, exactly um, what you said there, that there are still, I suppose, recognisable poetic devices within this, what looks like a piece of prose, like you said, her repetition. Mm-hmm. Um, it is it is hugely descriptive, but I love the boldness of repetition in it. I mean, the word water is used eight times. Yeah. Um, sunshine is used twice, plus we have sun flawed and sunspots. Uh, we have light um, written in a way that you really, really notice. I think we have that cracks it to bright light yeah. and then those planes of light. Um, so she's she's reinforcing, I think. Green, of course, is there three times. You know, and I um, suppose I'm just thinking while you're talking that the moment that she is in and she's trying to invite us into is, is saturated with these elements, with the water. with the light with the green um and if if, if anything it's more convincing the way she's written it like this because if if the whole poem was just an exercise in how many how many different ways can I describe this water in front of me so she's she's unafraid of she is describing it beautifully and originally in each line from its from its you know delicious wobble to its strange jarring at one point you know the planes of light in the water jar and that's also what I thought about reading it, that it doesn't feel like a fantasy, like someone's fantasy bath, someone's ideal bath. It feels like she really is there in the yes, bath. Yes, yes. <laughs> and so it's not a poem about what we think the perfect bath could look like. I feel like Lowell is in this water and writing about it. I agree. Well, I usually ask guests to talk us through the poem at this point, just very sure. briefly in terms of content. Um, and maybe there's not very much to say in this case, but... Could you just give us a, a sketch of what's in each stanza, or I suppose we should say paragraph? Yeah. Uh, and then we'll talk a bit more about it. So I, I love the opening line, the day is fresh washed and fair and there is a smell of tulips and narcissus in the air. Mm. And she gives us that flash of colour. Yeah, she's sort of setting the scene, I guess. Setting she? the scene. It sort of ignites all our senses straight away. And we're also conscious of the outside, I think, as well. And I think that's quite relevant because she takes us back to the outside at the very end of the poem, but yes. maybe we'll talk about that later. So so there is a setting of the scene. And then as the poem moves on, we have the sunshine pouring in at the bathroom window, where she could have left the poem at that point. You know, she could have just left the sunshine pouring in and maybe as readers we would have been happy, but it continues to come, that sunshine, because yeah. it, it bores the water, it cleaves the water, you know, it cracks it to bright yeah, light. So sun, physical, it, isn't it? So so physical, yeah. So we've got four verbs there, haven't we? Pause, yeah. bores, cleaves and cracks, yeah. Very physical and getting sort of more intense, almost tipping onto the kind of, not violent, but, you know, but really graphic mm. kind of physical description. Well, there and is almost a violence to it, the, the yeah, crack. The crack, yeah. that's what I thought. Yeah. And, you know, another poet would have been quite happy at the sunshine pouring into the room, but she wants to take it further and that's what I like about it. Yeah, so what she does in the third paragraph there is sort of almost put the sunshine under a microscope. I mean, she's going really deep in at this point, isn't she? Yes. And of course, we have that first mention of the word jewel there as well, that the water, it cleaves the water into floors like a jewel. Mm. And um, there is a 
a preciousness to not just what she sees, but to this whole moment, I think. And I think that when I talked earlier about bathrooms being private spaces, I think there's something here that Lowell is celebrating about solitude as well. Yes, about yes. the the necessity for it sometimes and actually the pleasure to be found. That that solitude has a preciousness to it, you mean? Yes, yeah. yes. Um, and as, the, as we go on to the sort of longer final section of the prose poem, she's very much looking at the water and its movement now. Yes. Uh, we, we watch it dance and wobble deliciously, which always makes me slightly smile. You know, we could think about bodies as well, and especially Lowell's own body, wasn't it? Which was she was known for being quite large, and I don't she mean was, that in a derogatory yeah, sense yeah. at all. But we all maybe, um, what do I want to say? Scrutinise ourselves in the bathroom, don't we? There are places yes. of scrutiny. Oh, there are definitely bits that wobble. <laughs> well, there are definitely bits that wobble. Yeah, <laughs> but I, it, that just felt like a really quite funny modern term for me about these uh, reflections wobble deliciously over the ceiling and then I think it's very sensual actually that stir of the finger yes and the moving of the foot and the lying back so just being so open in the water yeah she, and even, she, she reminds I'm sorry to interrupt you in full no. flow but as you're talking I'm just she's almost like a goddess here isn't she yes um, it really makes me think of a god in ancient Greece kind of causing these seismic shifts by some <laughs> you know this tiny action a stirring of a finger and it sets the universe of the bathroom, I suppose, to, to sort of move around her. Oh, that's really interesting, though, because yeah. the poetry course I wrote was actually given a title by the poetry school called um, House and Universe. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but they yes. become universes, don't they, I suppose? Mm. Um, yeah. All these, all these spaces. Very much so. Yes, so then she's still focusing on the day, the day that she started with. She's reminding us that it's still there, too bright to bear, and the water is covering her from that too bright day yeah I find that sentence really intriguing the day is almost too bright to bear yeah the green water covers me from the too bright day what do you make of that well I think that I think that and the whole close of the poem is actually very interesting and for me I felt that she almost hints at the slight threat of outside mm, I think does. yeah 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 and that and that there is a threat there from the outside and emphasised at the end, I think, by the crow flapping. I mean, yes, that's quite a quite presence sinister. to, to yeah. a sinister presence to introduce. And I think I get the feeling that the poet feels a safety in this particular solitude. Yeah, so the water, the green water covers me. It's protecting or cloaking mm. her. It's, it goes back to the privacy that you talked about. Yes. Um, yeah, so I definitely feel there's, while there's so much pleasure being explored here, and this moment is, you know, it's not going to last as long as a day. It's an ephemeral moment in a way, this moment of being in the water. So she's exploring the pleasure of it. But there's that threat of the day that waits outside, really. And yeah. She wants to make the most of this solitude. Yeah, and solitude. it strikes me that her desire for prolonging that moment of privacy is ironic, really, given the, the scandal that the poem caused when, when she yes. read it in public. Um yeah, so maybe she was wary of exposure at the same time as desiring it for her poetry. Um, yeah, I think that's probably true. And I guess there was a lot she had to be wary of. I mean, she was, I don't know a huge amount about her. You know, I can't sit here and pretend to be a Lowell scholar, but I know that, you know, her sexuality at the time, if you think about that. Mm-hmm. 
So she was said to be... Said to be, exactly, said to be a lesbian. Right, But yeah. um, in some respects in her writing, she was unafraid to explore that, you know, to write love poems. and. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, with that apparently personal... Um, yes, yeah, to go back to the uh, Sharon Old thing, yeah. Yeah, to go back to that that aspect of it. But if I think about her so boldly putting herself and her writing out there and being hugely regarded by her peers and, Mm. you know, and she was editor of anthologies, you know, focusing on imagist poetry and... Right, you've you've mentioned the I word there. So Imagist. So she was part of this imagist movement, wasn't she? I mean, you can probably summarise that better than I can. I don't sure if I can, but it was an early 20th century poetic movement where the focus was to sort of veer away or steer away from sort of traditional poetic diction or writing or poetic devices and to instead for the poems to concentrate on the concrete and the real yeah. and to provide clear images and for the writing to be uh, incredibly precise there's that word again but also not to be afraid to use informal language yes yeah I have heard that Ezra Pound who you know Mm. is supposed to be the sort of founding father if you like to put it that way of imagism um, that he considered Amy Lowell's adoption of imagism to be a kind of hijacking of the movement Oh, really? Yeah. So I'm just wondering whether with regards to this poem, that's part of the sort of too bright day that, you know, having to confront her critics, if you like. And in in particular, Ezra Pound, I think, was a bit miffed. Yes. So she brought out some imagist anthologies Mm -hmm. and he called her movement Amagism (laughs) from Amy, Amy Lowell instead of Imagism. So he was a bit. Right. A bit nasty about it. Um, right at the end of the poem, there's that image again, isn't there? The mm-hmm. smell of the flowers. Why do you think she brings the poem full circle like that? I think that you get quite a, a secure feeling from it going full circle, I think. Mm. And that also to possibly remind us of the setting that, you know, because it's almost like a kind of reverie. I mean, I did say to someone, you know, she makes having a bath sound almost orgasmic, you know. So, yeah, yeah. so you know, it's that kind of short-lived intensity that's in the centre of the poem. And it's yes. sort of bookended or framed or however you want to say it with the outside yeah. air. So it sort of underlines this pausing of time, doesn't it? That luxurious yes kind of stretching out of the present moment that happens in the poem. Yes, Um, I think so. And to open and close the poem with those senses, because the whole poem is such a heady experience. And and even though that crow is there, the crow flaps by the window, we get that flash of it, it flaps by, it doesn't stop, but it just flashes there. The crow's on his way, but she's not going anywhere. Exactly, (laughs) yeah. And the poem to me ends in a, there's that slightly sinister undercurrent, but I think there's a, a wanting to be hopeful at the end and maybe less afraid of the outside. Well, I think that's a very good note on which to end this part and move on to the next poem. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for talking to us about the poem Bath by one of your favourite poets, Amy Lowell. So the poem that I'd like us to look at now is Sea Love by Charlotte Mew. And when you told me that you wanted to talk about Amy Lowell, I thought of Mew immediately because, mm-hmm. you know, her dates are very similar. Yeah, very similar, aren't they? Yeah, so I worked out that Mew was born five years before Lowell and she died three years after her. Yeah. 
Um, but also, I've recently published a biography of Mew. You have. Uh, called This Rare Spirit. So I'm fairly familiar with her work, you might say. Um, and I'm obviously a very big fan of it. So yeah, thanks for the opportunity, Rebecca. <laughs> <It's> all right. <laughs> yeah, actually, while I was preparing for this podcast, I realised that there are a couple more biographical details that these two women have in common. Um, so their first poetry books were published in the same year, um, in 1912. Oh, were they? Yeah. Right, okay. Albeit on different sides of the pond. And both of them died in their 50s, so mm. relatively young. Very young. Um, do we know what Amy Lowell died of? I think it was a cerebral hemorrhage. Uh-huh. Yeah, so with Mew, she committed suicide at the age of uh, 58, but actually, I think that the differences between them are much more telling than the similarities. Mm. Um, so Amy Lowell was very wealthy, wasn't she? She was, and quite a privileged upbringing, really, and education. She had access to mm. all of that, whereas Charlotte Mew had much more difficult beginnings, didn't she? She did. I mean, she was born into a middle-class family, but, I mean, her father died when she was 28, and she, she got poorer and poorer as she grew older and sort of had to look after the whole family and mm. you know so lots of pressure on her and then maybe that explains why Lowell was a pretty prolific wasn't she um, yes sort of six, what, six to eight books I think in her short uh, it could have even been just a dozen years of writing of actual writing pretty I think good in going. her lifetime yeah. yeah yeah very good going so this 1912 book of Charlotte Muse was the only one uh, that she published while she was alive oh goodness yeah, there was there was another one after her death. Um, I think um, Lowell had three published posthumously, I think. Yeah, but I think she had about six published while she yeah. was alive. Um, yeah, I do too. But um, um, oh, only one in her lifetime, for Charlotte yeah. Mew, goodness. Yeah, um, and I think it was pressures of all kinds on her day-to-day -day living, I suppose. But anyway, to, to the actual poem. So it's a little eight-line narrative lyric um, and it tells its story in a West Country dialect. And this, this was a dialect that Mew used for several of her poems. And I think it gives this particular poem an air of uh, sort of unselfconsciousness that is mm. perfectly fitted to the, to the situation. So just to set us up, because the poem's so short, we find ourselves eavesdropping on a woman who has returned to a certain beach, a certain uh, stretch of shoreline, and it's night time. I don't think there are many words that need explaining before reading. Uh, some of the spelling's a bit strange, isn't it? Because mm. she is writing in dialect. Um, perhaps there's one word that does need explaining. So in stanza two of the two stanzas, <laughs> we've got the word glim, the moon's old glim. I mean, you could probably guess that that means glimmer or gleam. And I suppose it was part of that old West Country dialect. So sea love. Tide be running the great world over. T'was only last June month, I mind, that we was thinking the toss and the call in the breast of the lover so everlasting as the sea. Here's the same little fishes that sputter and swim with the moon's old glim on the grey, wet sand, and him no more to me, nor me to him, than the wind going over my hand. Lovely. 
Yeah, I think the amazing thing, or one of the amazing things about this poem is that in just eight lines, she manages to tell or suggest not only the story, but the backstory of a passionate affair. Mm. You know, they're no longer together, but they have been, and they were standing on that stretch of shoreline, thinking the same thought that, you know, the toss and the call in the breast of the lover. I love that line. I love the music of it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, it's so gorgeous to say aloud, to read, but also to say aloud. Yes. And we're immediately then taken into um, what this poem is about. You know, it it comes as quite a shock almost. It's like a really pleasurable shock, that line, I think. (laughs) It's a poem that unfolds line by line, isn't Mm -hmm. it? Um, Mm -hmm. So that first line, Tide be running the great world over, it really sounds to me like the private thoughts of someone thinking aloud. You get the feeling it's a thought that's just occurred to her. Um, And there's comfort in that thought. So here she is at the edge of the sea and the sea is sort of connecting her with the rest of the great world. I mean, I suppose we would say the wide world over or something. But So yeah, I think the poem introduces us to the speaker in, in such a way that, you know, going into it, it feels almost like an act of intrusion or sort of eavesdropping. You know, we step onto the shoreline beside the speaker and it's as if we're overhearing these private thoughts. Do you get that feeling? Yeah. And there's that sort of tie in with the Lowell poem then about what we're witness to or what we're... Yes. We've been invited close to witness or hear or look at something. So, yes, this very private moment. Yes, yes. Um, I think in this poem as well, there's a contrast between sort of permanence and impermanence. In line two, we hear her remembering an incident that happened the previous June, only last June month. And we're also introduced to this second person. So the line ends with the word we. Mm-hmm. Uh, we was thinking the toss and the call in the breast of the lover. So everlasting <laughs> as the sea. <laughs> Uh, So for me, this first stanza, as I say, is about permanence, the permanence of the sea, the seeming permanence of romantic love Mm -hmm. at the start of an affair. It reminds me of that um, Auden poem where the speaker overhears a lover singing under a railway bridge. It goes, and down by the brimming river, I heard a lover sing under an arch of the railway. Love has no ending. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly the sentiment here, is that they had thought that love had no ending. And love does always feel like that at the start, doesn't it? Of course it does, yeah. And you can't dispute that feeling. I mean, you, you just feel so sure at the very beginning. Yeah, don't yeah. Don't you? And, but I also love the fact that it's written in dialect, because I think that too makes me warm to the voice even more. Twas only last June. I do feel there's a kind of confiding going on. Yes. You know, the poet to the reader. Yeah, it's an interesting sort of mix of talking to herself. She could Mm. be talking to herself, but actually the poet craftsman is very much aware, of course, of the the reader's presence uh, and being on intimate terms with us. Yeah. Mm. Um, So then in the second half, the second stanza, we get this sudden, to think of it in musical terms, it's a sort of diminuendo, everything quietens down. So the the sort of all-consuming pulse of the tide in that opening stanza dies away to this faintest sputter of little fishes. And I love that word, sputter. Yeah, I love that too. For the fishes, yeah. 
And then there is the ephemeral flutter of a breeze. That's interesting because when I was thinking of this poem in my head, I thought it actually had the word flutter in it. And it, mm. I think it's to do with that word sputter. Yeah. Uh, and I think a lesser poet might have used that echo. Mm-hmm. But here I think Mew doesn't want that last line to be... To, to echo with the rest of the poem because, you know, the sputtering fishes are here to stay and the lover has disappeared. Yes. So she wants it to be very flat. The lover's gone. He's mm-hmm. as fleeting and impermanent as the, as the breeze and the fishes are, are sort of permanent. They've stayed where they are. Um, but also she couldn't care less that he's gone or, or so she's, she's saying. <laughs> yeah, so, so she's saying. Yeah. And, he, and so it's quite flat, isn't it? Well, I don't know if flat's the right word, but it's it's unadorned. And him, no more to me nor me to him than the wind going over my hand. And then it just stops. <laughs> yeah. You sort of can't question it or argue with it, can you? And, and him, no more to me nor me to him. And, and that's the way she cleverly changes the tone in that second stanza, I think. Yes. Yeah. You, to, to go from such an intense feeling in the first four lines to a different feeling in the next four lines is really clever, I think. But we, yeah. I don't feel we've made a huge leap, particularly. No. We have in, in content, as in what's happened. But it doesn't feel like that as a reader, does it? It's No. And it, it feels a lot smaller, that second stanza, doesn't it? Um mm. Yeah. A lot more faint. I mean, I do sort of see it in terms of sound. Well, it, it's full of all those I sounds, isn't it? Im, swim, glim, fish, yes. wind, go in. You know, yes, whereas, yeah. whereas that first stanza is full of all those E's of breast and love and everlasting. And yeah, much longer vowel longer sounds. Longer drawn out cool. vowel sounds. Yeah. Yeah. That is a brilliant point. Yeah. So it's... it's um. Yeah, more sort of staccato, not quite staccato, but you know what I mean, slightly shorter. Yes, more brief. ephemeral. Yeah. And ephemeral, yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. yeah. So I think, you know, it's seemingly such a simple little poem, but it's so cleverly and beautifully done. As that short discussion, I think, has demonstrated, this was one of Thomas Hardy's favourite poems. Oh, of, was of it? News. Yeah. And I do think the concision of the storytelling is extraordinary. Uh, and what she does with the, the sound and the image uh, is extraordinary too. Mm. Well, I didn't know it before, so thank you for introducing it to me, Julia. Well, and I was about to thank you, <laughs> Rebecca, so much for being such an excellent guest on uh, Poetry Break. Um, it's been a real joy to talk to you, and I've hardly noticed the uh, suffocating heat at all. <laughs> no, I haven't either. <laughs> thank you ever so much. I've really enjoyed it. Rebecca Goss, and Rebecca's most recent collection, Girl, is published by Carcanet. The theme music for this programme is performed on trumpet by James Copus. For the RLF in London, I'm Julia Copus. Until next time, thanks for listening. That concludes episode 364, which was recorded and produced by Julia Copus. Coming up in episode 365, in Location and the Writer, Carolyn Sanderson compares memory with reality, Paul Dodgson returns to a place he once escaped, and Claire Chambers enjoys the southeast London suburbs. We hope you'll join us. 
You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.